the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome. Welcome to State of the Theory. We are at episode six. Wow. And what is episode six about, Hannah? Episode six. This week we are talking about the success of the film Spotlight at the Academy Awards in the last couple of weeks. And we are looking at Spotlight in relation to some of the current events in journalism and news media happening the last couple of months, in particular the closing of Al Jazeera America's online um, corporation, company, offices, um, and journalism more generally. Yes, so as I'm sure you know, Spotlight won uh, the Best Picture at the Academy Awards. And that was a bit of a surprise. The predictions leading up to the Oscars was that uh, it was it was a shoe-in for The Revenant. Um, and Spotlight is a very different kind of film. One of the things that made us uh, think about doing this episode on this topic is that we both felt that it was an odd film to win Best Picture. Spotlight isn't the typical profile for a Best Picture film. Certainly not recently. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think at a more on a more kind of basic and, and unintellectual level, I have a very ambivalent attitude towards award shows. Um, not even ambivalent. I don't even think I, I have that sort of emotional investment in awards shows. I haven't paid attention to them in years and yes. years. And this year, a really good film was awarded Best Picture all of a sudden. Um, and I think that was quite interesting to us. And I think that the subject matter of this particular film at this particular time is very interesting. So do you want to say a bit about what the film is about for those of our listeners who haven't seen it yet? Yes. Um Interestingly enough, no spoilers here because everyone knows how it ends. This is a film about the investigative journalist journalists, the team spotlight at the Boston Globe, who in 2001 and 2002 were investigating the child abuse allegations by priests in the Catholic Church in Boston. And this, these news stories actually came out around the time I was sort of becoming a semi-aware young adult, teenager. So it's some of the first stories I remember actually reading about and thinking about and, and understanding to a certain extent um, as a young teenager. And then, of course, going to a Catholic school as these allegations are, I mean, kind of growing. The story is, is growing through the, the early 2000s. So it's actually a huge story for me. It's very familiar to me. You have just revealed quite how unforgivably young you are. Oh my goodness. <laughs> how old were you? How old were you? Where were you in 2001? I was starting university. I was working. 
I was working full-time as a telephone operator. For, yes. yes. Anyway, the film does a great job of capturing the sense of that time and the sense of that place, you know, the, the, the sense of what Boston, the city, is like and the role that these major institutions have in the, in the public life of the city. Institutions like the Catholic Church, institutions like, like the Boston Globe as well. And what happens when one major institution of the city chooses to take on another. Yes. One of the obvious reference points both for the film's audience, I think, and for the filmmakers is um, All the President's Men, which famously told the story of another great investigative journalist team, uh, Woodward and Bernstein at the Washington Post, breaking the story of Watergate and the Nixon White House's involvement in that particular scandal. And there are lots of ways in which um, Spotlight echoes all the President's men in terms of the way it looks, the way it reconstructs the feel of the newspaper office. Yeah, there's a lot of references to all the president's men that yes. are very explicit. Yes. We were talking earlier about the the shots of the printing press as the as the papers are are printed, the materiality of the print medium, um, which reminded me very much of the opening scenes of um All the President's Men, which has the, the bang as the typewriter hits the paper. And that, that it's a sort of shocking entry into this world, uh, materially manifesting the the force of journalism and the importance of journalism in in public discourse. Yes, one of the things I think is really interesting um, when you speak to journalists um, or hear about the work that they do, um, I think even more than academics like us, is the stress that that journalists experience doing their jobs because, um, you know, we think about deadlines, of course, but also the weight and the importance of the ethics of their work. And um, there's a constant negotiation um, for journalists. It's extremely stressful, but all, and it's, it's like an action film, except all the action is happening inside their heads. And so to capture the feeling of being in an action film for these, you know, for these four journalists to bring the audience in, the film does rely on a number of kind of visual tactics and tricks. Um, you mentioned the, the close office spaces, um, the working spaces that they're in, a lot of the places where, where key conversations happen between characters. But also there's, there's moments of action. So there's these really tense conversations, but then there are moments. So I'm thinking of, of this scene where um, they're all, there's a, it's a montage. It's like a Rocky montage, but they're all engaged in this really boring, mundane task of looking through old church records to try and place priests in various parishes at different times. And they're in libraries and cafes and at home. And the climax of this scene is when one of the journalists discovers that a, a priest treatment center is down the street from his house in his neighborhood. And the camera follows him in this long shot as he runs down the street in the middle of the night to look at this house. And, and it constructs this very tense emotional scene, 
even though nothing has happened. And both of those, the scenes you describe, are direct echoes from Alda Preston's Men. The, the montage shot of going through church records is very reminiscent of montage shots of Woodward and Bernstein going through library catalogues in the Library of Congress, trying to find who's, who's read these, these particular books. And the shot of uh, the journalist going, who's discovered that there's a treatment centre around the block from his house, and the long shot as he's running through the night... Um, is 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 an echo of many many shots in all the person's men as the camera follows Woodward or Bernstein as they're going through the streets on uh, streets of DC and specifically as uh, following Woodward as he as he famously meets Deep Throat in, in an underground car park and the the darkness of the of the city at night reflecting the the both the darkness of the story they're investigating and the often real danger that these journalists are putting themselves in in order to in order to uncover the truth. Yes, there's also it also highlights the the time constraints of journalism and of of news media generally. Um, you know, the papers are printed in the early hours of the morning and um, the nighttime writing, the nighttime working, the nighttime pushing the deadlines. Mm is a part of the action in both of these films. It, it, that's very true, but it, that is also slightly strange because the Spotlight team are not working under those deadlines, under those pressures. Yeah. So in All the President's Men, Woodward and Bernstein are constantly producing stories. The, the, the Watergate story was not one big expose that gets published on one day in one newspaper uh, issue. It, there's it's, there's a drip effect. It gets you know stories add on stories add on stories, illuminating different bits of the entire the entire plot until by the end the whole thing is revealed. But that's not how Spotlight worked. Spotlight famously, even though um, the the story is set is happening after the the invention of the twenty four hour news cycle, Spotlight are still given months to investigate the particular story they are working on until they have uncovered all the pieces, put the put the um, the jigsaw puzzle together and revealed the story in one fell swoop. What I think is interesting is how they go about constructing their justification for that because it's very, very clear why they aren't using the internet to break this story. And that is because the story matters too much that there's not enough, they don't ever have enough evidence in order to take on the Catholic Church. They need to amass this this huge amount of evidence and proof, and they need to write the full story yes. in order for the story to have power, yes. in order to, you know, in, in Bell Hooks's terms, speak truth to power, in order yes. to take on this massive institution. Mm. And they recognize... They recognize just how precarious their position yes. is, that it's yes. now or never for them. Yes. Um, and they have to take great care. Yes. And again, there is a connection there to All the President's Men because um, there is there is a scene in All the President's Men where Woodward and Bernstein make a mistake and they go for Haldeman as the President's chief aide too early before they've got proper confirmation. And that comes very close to letting Haldeman off the hook. But... Spotlight team don't make that mistake because they know that the Catholic Church is so powerful that unless they have got the Catholic Church completely um, 
bang to rights, as it were, then the PR machine of the Catholic Church, especially in a city like Boston, where the, the church is so influential. You know, there, there are lots and lots of shots of streets of Boston, and there is a, there, there is a church looming over every street, visually representing this, this establishment that they're, that they're challenging. And unless they've got it completely sewn up, the threads will unravel and their story will disappear. I guess one of the interesting things in terms of uh, the point you made about Bell Hooks' Bell Hooks's uh, phrase, Speaking Truth to Power, is the way in which these films represent, visually represent the power that that the newspapers are challenging. Um, because in many cases they don't, you know, all the presidents, I mean, it doesn't really show Nixon, it doesn't show the office of the presidency. They're sort of far-off shots of the White House. Uh, but the power is usually presented through architecture, right? The architecture of the churches, as we said earlier on, and the architecture of of um, Washington, D.C., the city being the centre of American state power. Yes. There is... It's definitely a scenic element, um, placing, placing the church physically in a shot where it's especially meaningful. Either the characters are drawing attention to it or the characters are having some sort of of moment um, of transition in terms of their relationship to the church. I'm thinking particularly of Sasha Pfeiffer, who is um, played by Rachel McAdams, um, in the church with her grandmother. Um, and we stop seeing her in the church about halfway through the, the film. But we never see... Um, we never seem much in the way of the institution. And I think part of that is because we follow the journalists and they are in some ways distancing themselves from the church. And we watch them as they do that. And we listen to them have conversations about, about the spiritual and emotional pain that that causes them having, having to drive a wedge between themselves and the church um, which is quite an interesting tactic, actually, um, in terms of telling the story. But also the, the power of the church is very clear. The Lee Schreiber character, um, Barron, the editor of the Boston Globe, who's this, this new editor who comes in um, to shake things up, they make, they make a big deal of the fact that he's Jewish, in a very Catholic city. He's an outsider in every way. And they keep talking about him as being an outsider um, and how he, he comes in and he sees this story. He sees the story and, and he asks the Spotlight team to take it on. And so we see this sort of inside-outside relationship between the journalists and, and the institution of the church. But the, the point of it is that he he encourages them to see it not as about individuals. This isn't just about priests. It's not just about victims, although there's a huge amount of emphasis placed on the trauma of the victim in, in this film, which is, I think, very interesting and striking. Um, but he says, we're going after the system. This is not about individuals. This is not about good people or bad people. This is about an institution. And this is about how an institution has allowed for the abuse and rape of children for decades. 
and I think it's it's quite rare that you see if you see a film um, or read a book really that manages to capture the complexities of the relationship between individuals and the institutions within which they operate. So what happens then to a film that, as you rightly say, captures the the necessity of attacking the system for problems that are systemic rather than individual? What happens when such an anti-institutional film, an anti-establishment film, gets recognised by something that is as much a part of the establishment as the Oscars. What does that do to the film? Are we, do we look at that film differently now that it has been affirmed by the Oscars? I definitely do. Um, I think the Oscars are fascinating um, for every once in a while throwing up a surprise um, nominating a more diverse group of people every once in a while and giving an award um, to an unexpected winner. This one is especially interesting, I feel like, because because the story is so timely, given all of the changes that have happened in the industry of journalism in the last couple of years. And it's not just Al Jazeera. Gawker Media, for example, has gone through some serious editorial and business transitions and changes, many of which are very controversial. Um, and The Independent has stopped printing paper copies of their of their work. So this is a this is a bigger story. Um, but it's almost as if this film and the Academy, as usual are five years too late yeah. and they've the establishment has caught on yeah. when there is no going back yeah. and investigative journalists have been saying for years and years that that their work and their livelihood and their art is under threat and that that is hugely damaging for our society and all of a sudden the oscars are saying oh yes we agree you're right. Mm. But it's too late. It's, as usual, it's too little too late. And you see that, you see that transformation or you see that attack visually on screen because the, the entirety of the Globe Spotlight investigation at one point gets shut down because the story they're investigating gets taken over by 9-11. And 9-11 is represented on screen through a very, very different form of media, right? We talked, spoke earlier on about the materiality of the print media. As you, as you see the printing presses producing the paper, you see the trucks taking the paper out into the world. And that form of journalism is visually contrasted with the way 9-11 is reported, which is on the TV screen, the much more ephemeral but all-pervasive 24-hour news cycle. What's fascinating is we watch a, a room full of journalists watch news coverage together in their newsroom. So they're all together as a group watching the news, deciding how they're going to go 
deal with this major event. And they're taking notes and they're, they're watching in disbelief. And there's, there's kind of two tricks here. I mean, it's evoking in everyone who has memories of 9-11. It's evoking their own activities on the day, which, is, which was that. It was everyone together watching these events unfold over and over and over again, um, trying to make sense of what happened. But it's interesting in, in the spotlight context because the story that, that they are investigating is also so important and has, has a history of its own. And the subservience of, of investigative journalism to the 24-hour news cycle is very present in this story. They're, they're, the characters themselves feel the frustration. They feel the anger um, at having to divide their time and their emotional energy between these two issues. And there's a very poignant scene with the the leader of the victims organization um, and the journalist Sasha Pfeiffer, where he says, no one ever cares about us. You will never care about us. You will only, you will only write our story when it fits into your schedule. And that's very poignant, I think, for those of us who get our news off of the internet and to see stories get buried and become, become invisible. Mm. And, and, the the irony as as nine eleven and the the enormity of the event that was nine eleven being presented through the screens through the twenty four hour news cycle in the process being reduced to uh, a simulation of the real thing as uh, French theorist Chabaudrier might put it um, in a way highlights the transformation of the media from this um what what we might call sort of a slow lane version of taking time as as spotlight were still then allowed to do and that that transformation is part and parcel of the process that ends up with something like al jazeera closing down right because what is at the heart of the 24 news cycle is not the enormity of the event per se but capital yes well there's this transition i think a number of of academics and and of course journalists um have seen this happen over the last kind of 25 30 years um the transition from the news as as reporting events um I'm thinking particularly of the good night and good luck era of news um, where journalists and news stations see themselves as reporting the news um, towards news as a form of entertainment. And of course, this comes with, you know, news being included in Nielsen ratings and, um, and generating profits through advertising revenues and that sort of thing. And, and you know, the rise of of Fox News as as pseudo news as news slash entertainment, um, and of course entertainment is designed particularly to be sold and consumed. 
And so we're, what we see is, is these news networks no longer reporting the news or even saying that they're reporting the news. They're generating the news. They're picking. And it's, it's not even, I mean, a lot of theorists, you know, Foucault, for example, or um, Bourdieu or Baudrillard would, would say that the news has always, has always been involved in picking and choosing and, and highlighting and silencing different news stories. But now there's, there's an explicit recognition on the part of these big networks that that is what they're doing, that they are picking and choosing based on what the public wants to consume, what they can, what they can sell for the greatest profit. And so there is, and it's, it's quite ironic because Spotlight is a film that's going to make a ton of money for these same, these same networks and these same studios. It's the film itself is a part of the system that has destroyed the actual work of the Spotlight team. It reminds me very much of um, French theorist Pierre Bourdieu's book on television, um, where he talks about the imperative uh, to not be boring, the anxiety about being amusing at all costs. He, he says this imperative explains why there is a tendency to shunt aside serious commentators and investigative reporters in favour of the talk show host. It also explains why real information, analysis, in-depth interviews, expert discussions and serious documentaries lose out to pure entertainment and in particular to mindless talk show chatter between approved and interchangeable speakers. And one of the most interesting things about that quote for me is that it's written in 96. Yes. Um, which is uh, much, much earlier than than the the current state of affairs that we are describing. So the process that we are describing today is a process that has its own long history. Uh, and we haven't, we, we didn't end up in this world of um, Fox News style news. And CNN. And CNN. CNN is a really interesting example because going back to Spotlight for a second, um, one of the interesting sort of visual echoes uh, two of the actors in, in, in Spotlight, Michael Keaton and Paul Guilfoyle, both star in an earlier film about news, Live from Baghdad, which is CNN's coverage of the first Gulf War, where they are openly experimenting with this brand new idea of the 24-hour news cycle. So they, they, they describe the Gulf War as the story that justifies the 24-hour news cycle, because it, the war is a 24-hour news story. People are not going to tune in for news at 10 to find out what happened. They're going to turn to CNN. And that is what allows CNN to to be to be able to report the news in, in a way that has now become so familiar to us across multiple news networks. I think that that, I mean, that's absolutely right. And it's, it's gotten, it's intensified, um, partly because of the internet, I think, but also because of the consolidation of, of studio money. Um, there are only a few studios left. Um, I mean, most of, most of this happens in LA. Some of it happens in New York, but most, most is in LA. And there are only so many people running 
running the show now. And so the stories that we get fed are, I say that in, in kind of a, makes it sound like a conspiracy theory. That's not how I mean it. It's not, it's not that we're being force fed in this sort of Orwellian sense. It's, it's that the, the world of the internet is so vast that certain things pop up um, and we start to see patterns and consume in the same kinds of ways a lot of these news stories. Um, but I'm thinking in, in 2003, when the U.S. military invaded Baghdad, everyone watched. I remember watching it. I remember watching it live on the news as the first bombs were dropped on Baghdad and the first firefights occurred in the city. And there was a journalist on, on top of, I can't remember who it was, on top of a roof reporting on the war beginning in Iraq, live, and everyone watched. Um, and it's, it's quite distressing to speak about it, to talk about it. It's actually a very disturbing thing. Um, but that is how, that's how the world is constructed for us now. It's constructed live, you know, as it, as it happens. Um, it really is. And, um, to quote uh, from a very interesting article uh, by media theorist Rodney Benson, who channels Bourdieu, I think, uh, in making this point, uh, that the in, the challenge in trying to analyse how journalism today works, and perhaps journalism has always, as you said earlier on, worked in this way, is that the news organisations we are talking about are, quote, part of the process of political meaning-making rather than just a convenient indicator of the outcome. So in reporting news, they are creating news. They are deciding what can be spoken about and what can't be spoken about. And the thing that can't be spoke, spoken about are what Bourdieu calls the social silences. The social silences outside the discourse, outside the realm of opinion. And these matter because they keep the elite in power and reproduce the social hierarchy. And therefore always limit the kinds of truth-telling that can happen and the kinds of truth-telling that is recognised, recognised both by major news organisations with their own immense social and cultural capital. You know, we spoke earlier on in the films about the institution of the presidency or the institution of the church, but also they're the competing institutions of the Boston Globe and the Washington Post. So, yes, they are speaking truth to power, but they're speaking truth to power from a particularly privileged position, both in terms of economic and social capital. What I think is most important about that is when you watch these two films, the reason these teams are able to do what they do is because there are people in positions of power that are telling them, yes, do this. Yes. The consequences will be severe, but I am here in the middle, and I will protect you. And that's, you know, the the, the Baron character, the Leif Schreiber character, he says to them at the end, and I think it's, it's quite poignant, um, and goes back to what we're talking about here with Benson and the news creating the narratives that we tell about the world. Um, and about current events, where the team is sitting together just before they decide to publish the story. And, and Baron says to them, 
You've been stumbling around in the dark. Most of what we do is stumbling around in the dark. But now we have turned on the light. And it's quite a it's quite an important moment because he's he's saying, This is scary. This is a huge deal. We're doing it as a team. And things are gonna get real. And I wanted to go back to what you were what you were talking about before. I'm not sure that I wonder if, if, you know, what we're talking about, we're drawing a distinction between the post 24 hour news cycle and, and social media and the internet as a source for news. Um, a lot of the story of Spotlight is about, um, particularly prosecutors and victims saying, we've been telling you this story. Yes. We've been sending you the evidence. The evidence hasn't changed. Yes. The story has been there all along. And the Michael Keaton character realizes that he himself has buried the story in in his past career. He himself has been involved in allowing the church to continue abusing children. And so it seems like there's this film and the story itself is is about some of the continuities and some of the the dangers inherent in telling the news and the the institutional seal of approval that is needed for stories like this to break so there is that uh visually incredibly interesting scene where baron who is as we said an outsider he's uh, a jew he has come to come into the city and taken over as editor of one of the main the main city newspaper the newspapers the boston globe and because this is Boston and because this is 2001, he gets invited for an audience with Cardinal Law, who is the, the main antagonist throughout the film. And the meeting of these two, on the one hand, uh, visually we see Baron as an outsider and as the person who is facing power. He's, he's usually shot walking by himself. He's presented as a fairly solitary character. He's the one who's come to meet Cardinal Law, who has the entire um, establishment force of the church behind him. He's sitting on this in his sort of throne-like sofa in the in his cardinal's office. office. And we are clearly meant to think of Baron as representing this sort of marginalized outsider. But of course, when the conversation starts we realize that Baron is, he might be an outsider as an individual, but he is representing an institution that carries huge weight in the city of Boston. So Cardinal Law, trying to get Baron on his side, says that it it's best for the city when the city's institutions work together, meaning the church and the newspaper. And Baron replies, actually, I find when the newspaper functions well, it functions well because it stands on its own. In other words, yes, on the one hand, the Spotlight team are speaking truth to power, but on the other hand, they are doing so not necessarily from a, a position of radical powerlessness, but to competing institutions of similar, if not equal, power and influence. Yes, I think what's what drives that home in the film, because the film is is quite aware of that. The journalists learn learn about the power they have when they speak 
to some of the victims and some of the survivors. They call themselves survivors. Um, it's interesting, the, the group call themselves survivors and the journalists and everyone speaking about them call them the victims. Um, and there is this, this very clear relationship between the two groups. And, and SNAP, which is the acronym for the Survivors Network, um, very clearly understand that they have been powerless and they are working through the dual oppressions of having been having been molested and abused in very terrible ways and we hear specifically some of the ways that they are molested and it is quite it is supposed to be distressing but we we recognize the distress through the journalists who have quite a quite a large degree of power here. They're a very well-respected investigative journalism team. They're some of the best at what they do. They're very highly regarded in the city and in the institution of the globe. So it is, I think it's well done in the film to a large extent. There's a, a very clear um, recognition of who has power here and, and who doesn't. Um, the Stanley Tucci character, we haven't talked about it all, but I think he's probably the most interesting. Um, the lawyer that represents the so-called victims. And he sits in between the institutions. He sits in between the church, the media, and the prosecutor's office and the, the arm of the state that is supposed to be protecting these children and he is this kind of lone lone arm of the law and he he narrates a lot of that for us the power of of these competing institutions and he says it to all of the characters at at various points going back to the comparison between spotlight and all the president's men one of the things that differentiates the two i think apart from the fact that they're what 30 years more uh, apart in time is that the first story the Woodward and Bernstein are more directly targeting the forces of the state right they're, 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 they're targeting the office of the presidency the, the, the ultimate representation of the state of the government of the United States and Spotlight are not quite doing that so is there a sense in which do you think that in the intervening 30 years, through the advent of the 24-hour news cycle, through the advent of the internet, through the consolidation of power in mainstream media into smaller and smaller uh, individuals often, has the relationship between media, specifically in the form of investigative journalism, light spotlight, has the relationship between that and the state changed in this intervening 30 years? Would it be possible for a Woodward and Bernstein-like expose of presidential level corruption today? It's a good question. I'm thinking of cases in the UK, Levison and the relationship between the press and the British government. We haven't talked at all about the British government no. today, but... Levison has a good point to do that. So, in um, for those of you who don't know, 
the British media were embroiled in a scandal about allegedly extending their remit in terms of ethical journalism through phone tapping and um, other methods of surveillance. And uh, this was used in an effort to rein in control over the press and arguably bring in or attempt to bring in what was seen as governmental control over the media. Of course, whether or not that was what was intended or whether whether or not that was even possible uh, is is a, a, a key question because some of the major figures in in the media, in British media, in international media, thinking specifically of someone like Rupert Murdoch, has spent a lot of time and effort and money in befriending figures in the government to the point where it is not so much whether or not the media can be put to work as a mouthpiece of the government or a mouthpiece of the state, but rather in a neoliberal, globalised, multinational um, media world, whether or not it is the state that is in some senses subservient to the to the needs of of the media corporations. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's. I think that argument is definitely valid. There's also the flip side, which is the WikiLeaks and the Guardian and Glenn Greenwald um, story, which is the opposite. Yes. Um, where we see this organization, WikiLeaks itself the object of, of Hollywood attention. Yes. Um, not quite as successful as Spotlight. Um, but fascinatingly, this, this character, this Julian Assange guy, starting a website where he is providing secret, classified documents that he believes the public should know about um, in a way, in, in a format that is not journalism. And he's starting to build these links. I mean, it's primarily an IT hacking foundation for WikiLeaks, but he builds these connections with, with news outlets like The Guardian and The New York Times. And The Guardian has... I mean, I would say that they've, they have pushed the WikiLeaks story to its very limit. But it has had very severe knock-on effects for journalists who have been working on the WikiLeaks story. Um, And so there are these two competing phenomena, I think. There's the the media and the government working closely together, primarily in the form of of individual friendships and, and relationships, but also the media trying to reassert itself as as being the the policeman or the watchdog of the state. Um, and it's doing both because it can't because of capital, it can't quite decide or figure out which one is more profitable, which one is more valuable, and which one is more sustainable. Yes. As a business model. Yes. So in other words, what 
and you know, as good Marxists, we know this. <laughs> what what determines whether or not the media will toe the line of the government or challenge the government is economy, is wherever it it sees the the bigger potential for profit, and again, as we know, as good Marxists, the the driving force behind what makes the news, what is allowed to be spoken, what is not allowed to be spoken, what remains inside the discourse, what remains outside the discourse, um, what we see on the front page of newspapers, what we hear from on, on TV, is based on the perception by these individuals at the top of these various networks and there are there are there are a handful of individuals in what they believe will sell better and things things can be challenged in other words this power can be challenged power truth can be spoken to power and certainly significant changes in public policy or institutional policy can be brought about but only insofar as those changes or the reporting of those changes can be turned to profit. Yes. I wonder where we sit. Are we are we entertainers or are we boring boring old school um well voices. We don't make profit. We don't. We have not monetized. Yes. I think we we are the, the naughty kids sitting in the back of the classroom throwing things. Yeah. That's that's probably the most accurate. Yes. I think that's a good point to end. Yeah. Um thanks for listening. Um we will be back in a week's time and let us know your comments as usual. Yes, tweet us. Um send comment on Facebook, comment on our SoundCloud page. We've had some some requests for topics which we have heard and are working through. So, watch the space. Um, we are, as we've said before, on iTunes. So, if you do get your podcast through iTunes, it would be a big help if you review and rate us on iTunes. That helps more people find us. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been the State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be? Where would we be?